You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Job tonight. Uh, it's on page 479, at least in my Bible. Okay, I don't know what's in yours, but it's around there. Uh, we're going to go to Job, and we're going to be looking at some in places called in uh, the wisdom literature. How should we interpret wisdom literature? So uh, this is where we are. Uh, wisdom literature in the Old Testament is that portion of Scripture that helps us understand how to apply God's wisdom in our lives. Okay, So there are five specific books that are categorized as wisdom literature. So far in the Old Testament, we've had the books of the law, right? Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then you got Joshua all the way to Esther. That's what's called the history, which kind of speaks to how well and how poorly these people would obey the law. And now we're getting to a place where we're actually looking at uh, the wisdom literature, the five unique books that bring this together. Uh, it makes sense to reason, uh, what these wisdom books are telling us, that it makes sense to reason that if the Lord created the world, he knows the best way to navigate through it, right? So if we think through that, uh, it makes sense to reason if the Lord created the world, so there's wisdom applied here. So there's five books. Um, what's interesting, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are contained there together in your Bible to bring together what we know as wisdom literature. Just so you know, um, Job, it, once again, we, we talked about how the Bible, when you look at the table of contents, it's not always chronological, right? So Job is grouped together next to Psalms because they're kind of thematically or how, how they're in part of a genre together, but they're not together because of time. Job, most likely, is a contemporary of a guy by the name of Abraham, all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, Okay. So Genesis starts, and we go all the way through all these books, and now all of a sudden we're back at Job. So why is Job not in the middle? So if you're actually, um, and I encourage you to do it, if you've never had a chance, but one of the, my favorite Bible reading plans is to do a chronological Bible reading plan. It's a little bit more you're jumping and flipping pages sometimes. But so the way this would work is you'd read Genesis 1 through 11, then all of Job, and then you come back to chapter 12. Um, but it, it gives you in the timeline of where things are that most likely Job is a contemporary of Abram, and yet, within this, uh, there is some wisdom that he gives us. Psalms, uh, who do you typically, what biblical character do you typically think of when you hear the book, word Psalms? David, right? When you think of Proverbs, who do you think of? Solomon, right? So you got David and his son Solomon. Ecclesiastes, Solomon, Song of Solomon. You want to take a wild guess on this one? <laughs> okay, Solomon. Okay, so, so Psalms through Song of Solomon are kind of, Two generations of this king family are primarily responsible. Not every psalm is David. I think 74 out of 150, I believe that's right, um, are, are attributed to David. And then the next one that's even closest is like 12 or something like that. That's, that's not another person. So, so with this, these, these five books come together. Um, they're unified by, by themes. So let's talk about how they specifically talk about wisdom in our lives. We're going to look at Job, which is what I call testimonial wisdom. Um, if you've ever, typically what people do is that they know Job chapter 1 through 2, and they know chapter 42, but chapters 3 through 41 is kind of like, oh, isn't it a long argument? Yes, pretty much it is, right, okay? So what the book is, um, but what happens in this book is that Job suffers not for his unrighteousness, but to display God's sufficiency through his suffering. Um, let's just look uh, at Job chapter 1, uh, verse number 1. It says, there was a man in the land of us whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. 
Um, so here's a guy that's a really good guy. They're trying to make sure that you understand that, that there's nothing necessarily wrong with him as it starts out. Um, in fact, if you go down, though, verse 6, here's where the story picks up the pace a little bit. It says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now is that not a weird response? What have you been doing, Satan? I've been walking around the earth. Have you thought about Job? What? What does that even mean? So we got to realize that Job, when, he's, when Satan says that, there's something else that he's implying that God's responding to. I've been walking to and fro, back and forth around the earth. God, you know what I've been up to. I'm making every single one of those kids trip up. All of them. All of them. It's so easy to tempt them, and you know it. Look how much of a train wreck. Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, you, Nate. No, look, look at this. Every single one of them. Have you thought about Job? Now, at this point, is Job aware of this conversation happening in heaven? <laughs> no, he is not. I imagine if he did, I'd like, I would like to uh, actually pause this, whatever's about to happen here. I would like to have a say-so on what's going on. Um, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord and said, Job, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He basically says, All right. Satan says, um, The only reason why he follows you is you made it easy for him. Everything in his life is good. Family good, finance is good, health is good. You touch any of that, guarantees going to be like the rest. So God basically says, okay, just don't touch him. Well, there's a lot of stuff you can do to somebody without messing with that individual, right? Exactly what Satan does. Goes after Job's kids. Goes after Job's property. Goes after Job's finances. Only thing Satan doesn't uh, affect is his wife, which later we'll find out probably would have been helpful if, if he would have messed with his wife, but he didn't anyway. Uh, that's, that's another we'll get there in a second, right? But 13 and following, it's just one after the next, right? Um, in fact, if you look, bad news comes, verse 16, and while he was yet speaking. Verse 17, while he was yet speaking. Verse 18, while he, it just hits him right after the next. When it rains, it pours. Y'all ever had a day like that? Or maybe not as bad as Job, right? But you ever had a day which is bad news, bad news, bad news. It just kept coming. So what does Job do? Verse 20. Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, I do not think this is exactly what Satan thought was going to take place here, right? What? So, chapter 2 comes back. Same scenario happens. Satan shows up. What you been doing, Satan? You know what I've been doing. I'm going around the earth. <laughs> Have you considered my servant Job? In chapter 2, verse, um, let's see, chapter 2, verse 3. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Heard that before. Here's a new thing. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Satan answered the Lord, said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he'll give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. He'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Just spare his life. You can touch him, just don't kill him. <laughs> Once again, 
if Job had a bug planted in heaven, right? And it's like, what in the world? Like, what, have you lost your mind, God? Like, are you kidding me? You can do anything you want to, just don't kill him? Don't kill him? So, uh, Satan attacks Job's health with boils, which are these skin irritations that are so bad, the only relief Job can get is he breaks a piece of pottery to take a sharp edge and goes, oh, he starts cutting himself just to get relief. That's the only relief he can get. So this is when his dear wife comes to his aid. Chapter 2, verse 9. His wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Oh, honey, curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks, dear. Okay, what are we having for dinner tonight? Like, oh, what in the world? Like, what? She's like, you, this is horrible. Look what's happened to our family. Now look what's, you're, you're in shambles. Just curse God and die. Just be done with it, right? And he said to her, verse 10, could Satan not have messed with my wife? Okay, now he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. So he's enduring suffering and he's not blaming God for it. Verse 11. Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Nemethite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Folks, at this point, his friends are awesome. Right? Did you catch what happened? I don't know if you ever had this. Have you ever had a tragedy happen in your life and somebody tries to come spiritualize and explain it all away? Here's what I want you to do. If you just think, da, 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 and you're just going, shh, can you just be quiet? Stop telling me all these spiritual platitudes. Just let me cry. Just be beside me. Just don't leave me for a second. And we go, yeah, but maybe this is happening. You've got to trust that God's got, I don't want to know that God's got to play. I know that, but I just, I just need a moment just to cry. And so for the first seven days, they just cried with him. Excellent friends, right? Sometimes, folks, I just remind you, we don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes you just need to be there with somebody. You're right? You're at a moment in your life, you just go, I don't know what they said. I sure was glad they were there beside me, right? So here they are. They're beside Job. Chapter 3, verse 1, he opens his mouth and he begins to talk. And then in chapter 4, this is where things get interesting, okay? They listen to Job. Job's saying, I don't know why this happened. God's not giving me a reason. I just wish he'd explain it to me. Chapter 4, verse 1, then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet, who can keep you from speaking, Job? Behold, you've instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld them who was stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it's come to you, and you are impatient. This is where they, um, things turn a little bit with Job's friends. You know why? Because they start trying to explain it away. Job, obviously, something's wrong here, right? And they start giving him poor advice. Job's friend provides Job, uh, if you think about it, with unwise advice. And, and the reason why this comes in wisdom literature is that they start trying to compartmentalize it. Job, if you're suffering, there must be sin in your life that's been unaddressed. Job goes, no, I think I've addressed it all. Repented of it. Done these offerings. You know, gone through whatever kind of stuff. I don't think there's unrepentance in my life. Okay, well then you're secretly not caring for other people. No, no, that's not it either. Now, they're not aware of what's going on. At this time, Job's not aware of what's going on. 
what's taking place. So honestly, if you read chapters 4 through, once again, all the way to 37, there's probably sometimes that we would side more with Job's friends. Pretty good point. Okay, that sounds really good. And yet all the time Job keeps declaring, I don't think I'm being paid back. This isn't karma. I did a bad thing. God's giving me a bad thing. I don't know what's going on. I just want to hear from God. I just want God to show up and want him to talk to me, right? So like in chapter 13, uh, verse number 4, let me give you this real quick. Um, Job speaks to the people and said, um, As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. You're whitewashing this whole scenario with lies. What you're saying to me is not true. It's not helpful. It's not helping anything at all. In fact, you're horrible physicians. You're not, you're not making me any better here, folks, which we see that, right? Chapter 16, verse 2, it says, uh, Job says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all, okay? You guys showed up to comfort me. You were doing a horrible job. Get a new job, right? Do something else. Why? They're saying, okay, folks, get this. They're saying decent-sounding advice, but it's not in the right context. They're assuming certain things of which they don't know. And what is Job trying to teach us? Folks, sometimes there's a wisdom that's way higher than us, and we can't see everything. We see this stuff, and we're trying to explain it away. And what God's trying to teach us through Job is sometimes there's this whole spiritual realm of things that we're not even considering. We have to be aware of. Through his ordeal, Job realizes the futility of the world's wisdom, and the fullness of God's wisdom. He sees that the futility of the world's wisdom, fullness of God's wisdom, and so he gets to this place. So, so uh, chapter 23 is one of my favorite spots where he says, hey, once he's tried me, I'm going to come forth as gold. Like, I'm wanting this to happen. Job is the one who says, I know my Redeemer lives, and one day he's going to take a stand on the earth. And all these beautiful places. With chapter 38, after Job is just like, I want God to show up. I want him to explain it. Chapter 38, God shows up in a whirlwind. And finally, Job's like, good, you're going to answer all my questions. And you know what God says? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? What? I've been asking you why I'm suffering. And you're asking, you're answering my question with a question? Yeah, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Uh, God, I wasn't there. That's right. You weren't there and I was. Hey, where, 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 are you the one who put the seas in their place? Are you... I'm the one who did that. Do you, do you know where the storehouses of the snow, how they're kept? Yeah, okay. It even gets, it gets funny. The funniest thing is the thing is chapter 39, verse 1. He looks at Job and says, he says, uh, do you know where the mountain goats give birth? I don't know why that's so funny to me. Right? God asked Job. I wish I would imagine Job would go, the mountains? I don't know. Like, like what, what do you mean? He goes, he goes do the most ridiculous. Job, do you even know where mountain goats give birth? And Job goes, is probably thinking, I've never even thought about it. I don't care about it. And God's going, you're right, Job, but I do. If I know where the mountain goats give birth and I've sort of created them and take care of them, don't you think I've got you right now? Don't you think I've got all this stuff situated? So at some point, chapter 40, and then again in chap uh, chapter 40, he says, all right, God, I'm done asking questions. Put my hand on my mouth. I'm done with. And then God goes, I got some more questions. Okay? And he comes again. Chapter 42, he, he ends and Job says, I've heard about you, but now I've seen you. And I got no more questions. Crazy thing is, God never explains the situation away. All he does is he reveals himself. And this is where I think is a beautiful picture because every time when there's somebody in the scriptures who seems like they have a question to ask God, when they encounter God, they don't have the question anymore. I'm good. Seen enough. Got it all, right? So Job 
is teaching us that when we go through suffering, uh, this testimonial wisdom comes to take place, that sometimes, folks, life has hard things in it. Sometimes we don't get all the answers to it. Sometimes there's spiritual things happening that we can't see. Then we get to a place that's called the book of Psalms, okay? Uh, the largest book in the Bible, um, 150 chapters in it, uh, which are, is all about worship wisdom, right? Um, well, Psalms are wise guides to worship lifestyles. And uh, you may not think about that because typically we think of Psalms as kind of the, the, the music collection of their worship songs. But deep down, it really is uh, a wise guide to worship lifestyle. I want you to look at Psalm chapter 1 for a second. Um, so just keep moving past Job, get to Psalms. If you were to think like, um, so at our house, one of the things that um, we'll do, we don't do this every single evening, but we have a collection of hymn books that we'll all get together and we'll say, let's, we're going to go through some of these hymns together. And one of uh, Gloria's favorite song is Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. She loves that song. So we'll typically sing that. We sing a lot of times, Great Is Thy Faithfulness. Uh, we'll teach different hymns uh, throughout the years and just teaching the kids certain things. Um, we were going through, you remember Rock of Ages? Oh gosh, you know, we were, we were walking through that, talking theology and stuff. And so we'll walk through all those, those books together. And, and what I always love is whenever you find a good hymn book, typically they're going to find like a really, really important hymn to be number one on the page, right? It's going to be How Great Thou Art, Holy, 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 something like that. It's just like, okay, this is, this is kind of, you start here and the rest of them are going to fall in line. You think that Psalms is going to do that, right? So you're thinking the first hymn out of 150 Psalms is going to be something like this. Oh, Lord, majestic in heaven and earth, we worship and proclaim your magnificent. Da, 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 da. And this is what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Now, is that not a weird way to start a hymn book? <laughs> really? I mean, like, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. What do you mean? Or stand in the way of the sinners, or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Per song. That's not the way that you would think it'd start, right? And I thought for a while, like, okay, whoever put this thing together, why wouldn't they start with Psalm 150 or 100 or, you know, something like that? Why would they start a book about worship all about relationships, what the first few verses say? Hey, people are blessed if they make sure they watch out who they hang out with most of all. Don't hang around the wicked. Don't hang around the sinners. Don't hang around the scoffers. Be careful about who you hang out with. But you need to meditate on the law day and night. Why would they start that out of 150 psalms? Here's my personal opinion. No one's ever taught me that. I just think this. I think Psalm 1 is the first one because if you get Psalm 1 right, you're probably going to make it to the other 149. Because if you align yourself with worshipers, guess what you'll do? You're going to worship. If you align yourself with scoffers, guess what you'll do? You'll be scoffing. And so it says, hey, you want to have a worship lifestyle? Make sure you're surrounded with other people who have worship lifestyles as well. All Psalms 150, one thing you have to notice about, their poetry, right? Okay. Now, you don't read it as roses are red, violets are blue, you sh I worship God and so should you, right? We don't, like, we don't read it like that uh, because, once again, the Old Testament is written in what language? Do you remember? It's in Hebrew, right? So there are lyrical and, and some kind of poetic things that are happening that we don't catch because it's translated into English. So there's like a pattern. If you were to read it in Hebrew, it's like, okay, that, that feels like poetry. We read it and go, that just 
Sounds like English, right? It doesn't sound like poetry, but it is written to be poetry. The Psalms are musical, metrical, memorable, and meditative truths of God. Okay? So they are musical. At some point, they were sung in Hebrew. Um, they are metrical, so which means it's poetry, right? There's certain lines, and that's why you'll see certain things. If you look at Psalm 1, it just looks different than when we were in Job, right? There's, there's kind of a lot of more indentions and kind of stuff centered in or justified throughout the book because it's supposed to say these are poetry. There's, there's certain rhymes and meters that are going on. They are memorable, right? Um, when there are certain... Um, when, we, when you sing something, right, it, it, it locks in a little bit deeper. Um, I, I just do. Um, when, when you think about, um, you know, if I, I go to uh, kneeling in deep contrition, help my unbelief. Okay? Some of y'all can, you start hearing it, right? Um, kneeling in deep contrition, help my unbelief. I'm crying, Savior, Savior, do not pass me by. There's this sense of sometimes when we sing it, these truths are more memorable, right? That's unfortunate because I could probably start singing certain things and all of a sudden your mind would get stuck on it, right? My kids were talking all these songs that get stuck in their head. Psalms are, are meant to be musical so that when people would leave the temple back in these days, guess what all of them did not walk home with? They didn't walk home with this. But they could walk home with a tune in their head, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffer. You know, I, don't, I don't know how that's went, right? But it, it's stuck in their head. It's, it's, it's memorable. And so they walk down, and it's meditative truths of God. You, you sit and you think about it. You, you think about those lyrics. Um, you know, I think what's something so powerful about a song, even like today after going through 1 John chapter 2, and, and Donald does such a great job of picking the songs we do, but when he comes to the end and knowing, seeing what we're going through the passage and praying through it to say, you know what we need to end on? Before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. The great high priest who pleads for me. Right? And there's, I love that song at any time, but after spending 40 minutes of 1 John chapter 2, I'm ready to run through a wall. Okay? Like I'm just like, yes, one in himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. It, it, it brings something, I think, deep and, and emotive about it when we get down to these truths of God's word. Um, Psalms teach us how to speak openly and honestly before God as well. If you honestly read the Psalms, one of the things that you will notice, there's probably a couple times you will gasp and go, can you say that to God? Because <laughs> a lot of them are, where are you, God? How long is this going to go on? Everybody's making fun of me. When are you going to help? None of this is changing, God. My enemies are triumphing over me. When are, where are you? Don't be far from me, God. This is not the type of music we typically sing, right? I mean... It's just, it's, it's some very different stuff. But, but one of the thing, great things about Psalms is uh, you read some places, there's a lot of joy. Like Psalm uh, 100, enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Then you go to Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you. How long am I going to keep crying, God? Where are you? Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. That's a, it just helps us process all of life's emotions. Now, there are different types of psalms, and I'll go ahead and give you, I'm going to give you three examples, but it's probably, some people have up to like 14 or 16, like, different categories, okay? I'm going to give you three very kind of different ones to kind of make you understand that throughout this, this is helping us know how to wisely worship and to live through life. The first one is something called laments, okay? Sounds like the book of, you may want to guess? Lamentations, right? Lament. I'm lamenting something that is wrong. You're expressing deep distress, right? 
There are many psalms that are laments that are just, God, what is wrong? Why are you letting this happen? And it, it can be shocking sometimes the language of how um, blunt sometimes they can be. And yet they're recorded for us. And why are they recorded for us? Because I think it's trying to teach us God's, God's big enough that he can handle our, what in the world's going on, right? God, what, what are you doing? Um, Psalm 22.1, you might have heard somebody quote this before. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who sang that song in Scripture besides this? Do you remember? Jesus did on the cross. He quotes Psalm 22.1. God, Eli, Eli, Lamech, Sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everybody's listening going, what did he just say? Jesus is going, I'm feeling the weight of everybody's sin and condemnation on me. And it's like God has turned his face from me. God, why is this happening? He is using, and this is important, the music that he has learned to sing in his life come out at a, a very, very needed time, right? I don't know if you have ever had this experience before, um, but this happened, uh, gosh, last time was probably over a month ago. Um, standing in the room with someone who is out and doctors saying they cannot hear you, they've got hours, maybe days, they're not responding to anything. And you talk and you pray nothing. And then I bend down the ear and I say, amazing. And you go, and the body just transforms. You've probably been there in that moment, haven't you? You start singing a truth and something happens inside of them. And they don't, eyes don't open, they don't start talking, but you can tell if something's happening in there right now. Music has this incredible way to do this. And so when this situation like Jesus is lamenting, there's something deep down where he, he pours out his heart in this lament and many other people have done that as well. Now, on the other side, here's another category very different from it. It's called praise, right? It's not what's wrong with all this kind of stuff. It's just expressing praise for who God is. And there are plenty and plenty of psalms that really do this very, very well. So it's just, I'll give you a great example of one. Then as you look at um, Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name and how what? All the earth, you have set your glory above the heavens. And so there are a lot of praises that just do this. Like, Lord, just, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You see the different types of way that Lord is spelled there. It's saying, oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, the one true great I am. You are our Lord. How majestic is your name in all the earth? Nobody like you, right? And these songs are about praise. And sometimes it's just a wonderful, wonderful place to start. Then there's a, another group of psalms that there's not as many, but it's very interesting that I give you as an example uh, that's important. It's called imprecatory psalms, okay? Imprecatory. Once again, you have learned all kinds of words today. Propitiation, imprecatory. You know, I was, I was telling everybody, I know that these are hard words, and I told everybody, you know, you don't have to spell it. Gloria at lunch today said P-R-O-P-I-T-I-A-T-I-O-N. I said, okay. And nobody has any more excuses, okay? She's spelling propitiation. And I said, did you listen to the rest of my sermon and just keep rehearsing that, okay? But anyway, the, these deep words, what, what, what do these words mean, right? Imprecatory means this, expressing anger to and through God verbally rather than to someone else in a verbal or physical manner, Okay. Have you ever been so mad at somebody you wanted to hurt them? Okay, y'all are in church. Y'all don't want to say so. I have been so mad at people that I want to hurt them, okay? I want to physically put my hands around them, and I want to make them pay. I do. Um, I was close to it. I'll go ahead and be straight with you. Friday night, okay? Friday night, I'm invited to go to Piedmont Women's Center. They had a service for uh, any uh, woman who has uh, 
dealt with a miscarriage and they've gone through a Bible study to deal with that pain. And this is a memorial service for those babies that have died in the womb. And they've asked me to come in and give them pastoral encouragement. Beautiful, beautiful service. Right before the service is starting, though, ladies that work at Piedmont Women's Center are standing there. They're like, oh, no, who's in the parking lot? I need to lock the doors. And they lock the doors. I said, what are you locking the doors for? They said, I can't tell if that's a church that's praying over in the parking lot or is that the group of protesters? I said, what group of protesters? They said, every day this week, we've had people protesting at Piedmont Women's Center playing vulgar music with every cuss word in that name, signs and banners and all types of stuff that are some of the most crass, ugly things that you can imagine, yelling at people as they come in to get help and care for a unexpected pregnancy of sorts. And so I, I said, so you're not sure if those people are here to, and I, I'm sitting here thinking, the people that are in the room right now, um, there was one, one lady who has experienced three miscarriages this year, okay? And now they just see people in the parking lot, and I'm going, if they think this is some, you know, pro-life rally, they're going to come bust up. If they come up in here, I'm going to lose my mind, and you're all going to see me on the newspaper tomorrow morning. Like, I'm just sitting here going like, it's a, no, unlock the door. I'll go check it out, right? And so I'm going out there going like, well, who is this? Well, thankfully, I think there's a group of people that are gathering to pray for, for something that was, because it's next to the abortion clinic, but... Um, when I had this moment of, you mean to tell me that somebody would come and disrupt, yes, I get frustrated and upset with people who would uh, picket and protest someone who's fighting for pro-life. I get that. But to think that they would bust up in there and hurt a memorial service for women who've had a miscarriage, I literally thought I was going to lose my mind. I was angry. You know what? Like, I'm spiritual. I was spiritually angry. <laughs> okay? Like, it was anger. And so in that moment, if I get involved, there's not a lot good that's going to happen. Right? Do you think in that moment I can reason with somebody if there was a crowd coming out there picking and kind of, there ain't no one's going to do this, right? If I go in there and I get uh, vocal, frustrated, stuff can escalate, and I, I could, I could have ended up in a bad spot, right? And this is why imprecatory psalms exist. God's people going, I don't know what to do with all my anger. I'm so angry. I want to hurt somebody. And he says, sing that to me. Bring that to me. We go, I, I don't want to admit it. God's like, I already know it's there. Just deal with it. Okay. Just, just lay it out there for me, right? i give you one of the most uh, shocking ones. is in Psalm 137. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us, he who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. <laughs> All right. Let's just imagine next Sunday, Donald says, Everybody stand up. Glad you're here to worship. Let's sing together. O daughter of Babylon. Doomed to destruction. Happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. He who seizes your babies and throws their heads up against the rocks. Let's repeat that chorus again together, everybody. Come on. Clap on it. As we... Is that not weird? This is a song. This is a hymn in their book. This is shocking to me. What is it saying? The Babylonians had thrown the Israelites' babies' heads against the rocks. They had killed their children when they took them off to exile. And they were so angry. They said, God, we just want to do it to them. We want to pay them back. God, you do it. Were the Israelites trying to do that? In this psalm, they're saying, God, we're so angry. We want to hurt them. And he, they said, we give this over to you. You take care of it. You make it right. Now, that's a good prayer, folks. Right? I'm so angry. I want to hurt somebody. And God says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. So within psalms, folks, there, there's the three categories. There are plenty, plenty more. Uh, that are that are so there's so much things going on. I gotta we gotta move fast in these other ones. Here we go. We're gonna pick up the pace a little bit. Proverbs, practical wisdom. 
Uh, we've spent a lot of times in Proverbs the last couple of years, but Proverbs point to the truth. They do not state everything about a truth, right? So Proverbs are going to give you a little nugget. They don't always give you every single thing about a truth, but they're going to give you something memorable, bite-sized that you can lock into. Like Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3 says, Commit to the Lord whatever you do and your plans will succeed. Well, that sounds just really nice, doesn't it? Okay. I'm just going to commit to the Lord whatever I do and everything's going to work out right. Well, that is a good process. Does it always happen that clean and easy? No, but it, it is. It does point to the truth, right? If you want to do anything, I'd commit your ways to the Lord. That would be a lot better than not doing it. Um, also understand Proverbs are not legal guarantees from God, right? So because you have a verse does not mean necessarily that you have to say these things, and this is definitely going to happen. Uh, they're not legal guarantees. Uh, just as we mentioned this summer, going through it, the back side of your page, Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And every single one of us knows somebody who was trained as a child in the way they should go. And when they got old, guess what they did? Departed from it. Now, we are praying they're going to return to it, Right? But sometimes that, so, so it's not a legal guarantee, but parents, grandparents, if you got two options, train up your child in the way of the Lord or train up your child in the way of the world, and you want them to be godly, which is your better option, right? Train them in the ways of the Lord. That's what, what Proverbs is teaching us here. Proverbs are worded uh, to be memorable, not to be theoretically accurate. Okay, they are poetry as well. So they're, wor they're worded to be memorable, uh, wanting you to remember the truth of it, but not necessarily always be theoretically accurate. Proverbs fifteen nineteen says it this way. The way of the sluggard is blocked with thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. Okay. So does that mean every time somebody's lazy that thorns block them? No. It, but it's a memorable way to say when you're lazy, guess what? There's going to be complications to what you're trying to do that are going to hurt you and slow you down. So it's a memorable way to say it. Uh, Proverbs provide practical advice for daily living, okay? Provide practical advice for daily living. So sometimes it's so practical, so specific, so tangible of them saying, hey, do these certain things and, and these things will come out. Proverbs 6 verse 9, I love this place where it says, how long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? He's saying this, you want to make something in your life? Get out of bed. <laughs> Okay, get up, get a job, do something, you know, to be, be active. Don't just sit there. How long are you going to lie in your bed, right? Um, some of you are like, I'm retired. I resent that or I resemble that. Whatever one it is, okay, right? But there is a sense of like, hey, let's do something with, with what the, the time that we've been given. Um, also, Proverbs are individual sayings but compose a greater collective truth, right? They're individual sayings, especially once you get past uh, chapter 11 or so. It's really just like one verse doesn't necessarily correspond with the other but the most humorous places in Proverbs is um, what I have there for you in Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. So I want you to look at these verses. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Does that make sense to y'all? Because it seems like he's saying two very different things, right? Verse 4 says, hey, look. If an idiot starts yelling at you, don't get entangled in it. You know why? You're going to look like one too. Don't get into it. The next verse it says, and if you don't speak up to an idiot, guess what? He's going to think he's right and somebody needs to correct him. Well, which one is it? Wisdom will teach you. Every situation is different. Uh, Jesus said sometimes you do not need to cast your pearls before what? 
slide. Folks, you know the difference of somebody you can reason with and somebody you're not going to be able to reason with, don't you? Sometimes you're just answering that file and you're going to get all upset and all it's going to do is create more issues. Sometimes, though, you need to speak up and say, let me, let me help point you in the right direction. And this is what Proverbs helps us to have that collective truth. In the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, this is what I call cynical wisdom, right? I love Ecclesiastes because of how real it gets. Uh, Solomon, King Solomon, sought wisdom in earthly means and methods. He says, um, if you want knowledge, i got more books than anybody. If you want more schooling, I've got more degrees than anybody. You want more vineyards? I got them more than anybody. You want more women? Got them more than anybody. Money, land, I, I, got, I got so much stuff out there. And guess what? Kept coming up the same ending. Worthless. Vanity. Striving after the wind. He ultimately became wise when he saw that every worldly thing uh, or, or everything worth living for under the sun was meaningless. He, he became wise when he saw, look, everything in this life that you like, you get caught up in, and when I say everything worth living for is like on the world standards, right? I want to live for finances. I want to live for, for uh, prosperity. I want to have all these things. Everything the world says is worth living for, it's meaningless. And when he got to that place, it, it started to make sense. Ecclesiastes 1-2 says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All of it's meaningless. There's no, there's no point to it all. And so he goes through these chapters saying all the things he sought to try to find meaning to his life, and he always found up just at the end of it. Like, it was just a dead end. So the beginning of the book tells of his quest for wisdom, uh, and the ending arrives at wisdom's destination. The beginning says, I'm looking for wisdom, and everywhere I go, vanity of vanities. Which is funny, right? Because um, some of you ladies have a mirror called a what? A vanity mirror, right? This sounds really depressing now, okay? Like a vanity mirror. Ah, vanity of vanity. What's the point of it all, right? It's just going, you can find all kinds of stuff in life that are trying to give you, but he says it's all, it's all empty. It's all meaningless. It's, it's nothing. It's striving after the wind. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing's good, blah, blah, blah. And at the ending, he arrives at it. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. At the end of all things, here's what you need to do. Fear God and keep his commandments. Boom. There's the point of life. This is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. He says, look, you can do all these things in life, but when you really come down to it, just fear God keep his commandments. That, that's where wisdom comes. That's where life gets its point. And then the last one is Song of Solomon, which is about romantic wisdom, which is, I know what all of you were hoping we were going to get to tonight. And here's, here's the, the thing about it, right? When you read this book, it is a unique book, Right? Sometimes, if, if, you don't, if you've read it and you haven't gotten read in the face a couple of times, you have not read it slow enough, okay? Because there is some interesting, interesting things in it, right? I want my kids to read the whole Bible, but this book comes at a specific time, right? Okay, there's just, and, and here's the, the deal with, with Song of Solomon. Due to the risque nature of the book, many believed it had to be about something other than the apparent plain meaning, right? Um, because the book sounds like a man and his new wife uh, so enraptured with love, that's ah, uncomfortable, so we're going to make it about something else. Uh, as a whole, a few hundred years ago, the, the interpretation of this book moved from the love between a man and a woman to the love of Jesus and his church, foreshadowing that, right? Um, I can understand that, and that may make some people feel better. It does not make me feel better. Okay, and here's why. If it makes you uncomfortable to think of a husband and a wife interacting like that, I don't think it makes it any better to go, well, that's how Jesus loves us. I, I, I think that when the author wrote this book, what it originally meant to them was, I'm excited to get married. 
and God has made marriage and intimacy and sexuality a good thing, and I like it. I think that's what the book's about. And you go, could that be in the Bible? It's kind of an important part of our lives. One out of 66 books is about marriage and intimacy, and I, I do think this is what the book is apparently about, right? Uh, and this is important, that God celebrates physical and emotional affections within the marriage union. It's not a bad thing. Um, the way that God has wired husbands and wives together, it's not a sinful thing. Unfortunately, because Satan and this culture has distorted sexuality so much, we have thrown it all out together and we think that somehow it is this evil thing that we just have to endure. It's not. This is what I, I often say, and every time I ever say it in any kind of church context, I just think that my poor grandmother is probably rolling around in her grave whenever I say it. But when I ask the question, who invented sex? It's important for us to say boldly, God. Satan didn't do it. It's God's idea. And it's not a bad idea. Satan has distorted it, right? And, and that's the problem with it, but not in the original way that it's put together. So this type of, it's actually a love song, and this type of love song was often declared at wedding banquets to express publicly one's devotion for one spouse and to ward off any thought of infidelity, right? So <laughs> at a wedding banquet, it's like, my girl is so beautiful, all of you I don't even have eyes for compared to her because she is so fine. Her neck is like the Tower of David, right? Which I know what every woman's ever wanted to hear her man say, right? Okay? He one time says, your hair, baby, is like a flock of goats running down the fields, right? Every wife says, oh, thank you, honey. Thank you. Like, I try that on Amanda all the time, and she just rolls her eyes. I'm like, baby, your hair looks like a flock of goats this morning. She gets really frustrated. I think it's good, and it's a biblical pickup line. I'm thinking I'm winning on both ends, but anyway, it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, with this, it is also one devotion to spouse, but also... Well, that's going, uh, is also to ward off any thought of infidelity. It's to tell everybody, hey, I belong to somebody else. I'm, I'm enraptured in this love. Don't have time for anybody else. Don't, don't want anybody else. She's enough. He's enough is, is what these things are saying. Let me give you a few of these verses that are, I just think are beautiful because it really shows, um, I think, what different parts need. And it really shows down some deep things about marriage and then we'll be done. Um, this is what I believe a woman wants to hear from her husband. Okay. Here it is in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. You are altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. I think every woman wants to hear that, right? Even if she doesn't believe it, okay? You, you are not just physically beautiful, altogether beautiful. I like the inside, the outside. I like what you talk about. I like what you do. You're altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. She's going to say, but haven't you seen these? No, 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 no. I see you as altogether beautiful. There is no flaw in you. Um, what a woman needs from her husband, okay? Here's one for you, Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. I love this verse because when you think about a banner back in those days, remember when armies would fight against each other, you'd have the banner you'd all start from. They all run down the hill, and they all start fighting, and then I'll, I'll always think of these war movies. I see it like if somebody bumped into me, I'm swinging. I don't even look. I'm just saying if somebody bumps into me, I'm going to take somebody's head off. Like, oh, he was on my side. You know, if you, if you get caught up in the, in the chaos of the battle, right, you get lost. So what do you do to get reoriented? You look up for your, your army's banner. Oh, that's our side. And you run to it and you're safe there. And this is what the woman is saying. His love for me is like the banner on a battlefield that I can run to and hide and be safe there. I get lost out there sometimes, but I can run to that because that's a safe spot. His banner over me is love. He's brought me to the banqueting house and, and I, I am close and, and safe there. 
Uh, that's the thing what also everyone wants here. Uh, this, when it says his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable, I think she's saying, I like when he kisses me, but I also like what he says when it's very sweet too, okay? I think it's both and, right? And I think this is also so important for all men in this room to understand about our, our ladies in our lives, where uh, this is how she would think about her husband. This is my beloved and this is my what? Friend. Oh, daughters of Jerusalem. Well, those are all your friends. Those are all your girlfriends, daughters of Jerusalem. So why are you saying that? She's like, no friend like him, though. You know, I don't mind saying that to my other girlfriend. Like, there's no friend like him. Like, now, so there's one, there, there's two aspects of marriage, right? It's lover and friend. It's not one or the other. It's both and. It's, it's yes, there's, there's something special there. But there's also physical attraction, but also emotional connection there. Uh, you get down to it, what a man wants to hear from his wife. You know, I'm like, I don't know what he wants to hear. Okay, here, here's what a man wants to hear from his wife. I love this. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. I have asked Amanda to quote that to me every single morning when I wake up. She has done it some days. Okay, but no. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. What is that saying? Every man wants to hear his wife say, nobody's like you. If I had 10,000 men, you'd be the one I'd choose. Nobody like you. Nobody like you. Every man is on a quest for significance. If he can find it in a relationship with God, in a relationship with his wife, he doesn't typically have to feel like he needs to find it something else out there. Distinguished among 10,000, nobody like it. What a man needs from his wife, right? I love this. As a lily among brambles, if you don't know what brambles are, they're prickly shrub, okay? As a lily among brambles, uh, so is my love among young women. She just, she don't stick me and poke me in the side like all these other women do, okay? She's not poking and prodding, there's always something wrong. Just as a lily, she's a lily among a bunch of people that are sharp and hurtful and harmful and all this kind of stuff. She just brings such love and, and wonderful things to it. And so with this, through the wisdom literature, we find testimony wisdom, worship wisdom, practical wisdom, cynical wisdom, and romantic wisdom. And whichever one of those you need tonight, I encourage you to read one of those books before you go to bed. So with that, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power of it and for the wisdom literature. Help us to be people who not only learn it and treasure it, but apply it in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.